We are in a little series called Fearless. Uh, Fearless is a response to the massive issue in our time of fear, anxiety, worry, doubt, and all of their friends. And over the last number of weeks, we have been verse by verse, kind of tracking our way through Psalm 23, kind of one week after another, getting another verse, right? We love that. So by, you know, by the end, we'll actually be reading the whole passage. Um, and we're up to Psalm 23, verses 1 to 3 today. And I've asked Ellie Wilmont if she would come and read these verses for us. So Ellie, why don't you come ahead and read for us now? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Amen. Thank you, Ellie. Guys, there was really big Belfast news this last week, right? Big, big Belfast news, okay? I know as a church made up mostly of young adults that you were possibly deeply affected, maybe even moved to tears by this news, and it was that Established is no longer allowing dogs in it, right? It was big time, big time news, right? Lydia! It's huge, right? And we've got a church full of dog lovers here. Helen Warnock and I had a, had a very funny exchange back and forth, right? Um, where she, every time we had like, arranged to, to meet for coffee to talk about church stuff, she'd be like, I'm bringing Molly. Because she knows I like dogs in an expensive coffee shop. just doesn't work for me. I'm like, you're eating your like, posh, a smashed avocado and eggs Benedict on Sardo. And there's some dog like crawling around under your feet. Not okay, right? So she would kind of threaten us all the time. I would like counter-threaten by saying, I'm coming to the meeting in like. Um, from cycling, obviously. I mean, I'd never just dress. I probably would just dress like that. It's really very comfortable. Um, so we were like texting back and forth about this, about the big established announcement and how people have taken the news. I mean, if you've read the comments, the comments are worth it alone. People being like, can you also ban small children? And like things like that, right? True story. Um, and I said to Helen as we were talking, you know, it's like some real life modern day segregation story, right? Tears emoji, right? That's how it works, right? Dogs not allowed in. But what it did do was it got me thinking about uh, the, the kind of pets that my family has had in our lifetime, right? I actually do love dogs, Helen. I'm sorry. I love Molly, but I love animals, just not while I'm drinking my coffee, okay? Um, and the first pet that I would like to tell you about was our dog Susie, right? And Susie was our family dog whenever we moved to Belfast. We used to live out in the sticks in Kelly Lay. And we had this, like, border collie kind of cross, right? Uh, and we moved from there to Belfast. And she was amazing. She was an incredible dog whenever we lived out in the country. Note the words, whenever we lived in the country. Because whenever we moved to the city, it was like something happened to her. She never really came to terms with how busy it was and cars kind of buzzing by all the time and lots of people and all of the movement and all of the noise, right? And she been in this quiet, she could like, the back of the manse in Killy Lay, we grew up in manses all our life, the back of the manse was like this huge forest and green and she could just like run all day, there was no problem, she came back later, it was easy and then we moved to Belfast and it just was never the same, she was never the same, she became this kind of quite jittery dog, she was easily startled, she was hyper territorial in a way that she never had been before, I mean she was great with us but with other people, she could become really nervous. She could become almost like afraid a lot of the time, never quite sure if she was coming or going. 
And then one day, my friend from down the street came to call for me. So he ran up the street, he jumped over our gate, and as he was like running towards our front door to call for me, Susie just like bolted down the driveway. Gavin saw Susie coming, ran, tried to run back over the fence, but in the like critical moment, as his like backside was hanging over the fence, Susie nailed him, right? And in the like immortal world words of our childhood, oh, me bum, Susie bit me bum, like crying down the street, right? And Susie had to be put down because she'd bet a child and all of that stuff. And it was really sad. Susie was just never the same. She was afraid. She never came to terms with the change of scenery. Or I could tell you about her dog, Holly. Holly was amazing. She was a golden retriever. She was beautiful. She was one <laughs> Lydia. She was one of those like big, placid, just brilliant dogs, right? And in our house where we lived at the time, it was like, you know, those endless summers whenever you were a small child, right? All you ever remember is like sunshine, ice cream running around the back garden. And we had this post driven in the middle of the back garden. It was huge. And she just like ran around the back garden all day. And one evening, my dad came out, gave her a dinner outside. We went inside to eat dinner. At the same time, somebody decided that it was a really good idea to drive by and throw a pipe bomb at a house that a judge lived in at the top of our street. Pipe bomb goes off. It's really loud. Holly runs, breaks the chain, and just keeps running and running and running and running, and we never, ever see her again. And we were devastated, right? Like kids, like completely devastated. We drove around those streets for days on end looking for Holly. I don't know where she went. I don't know if she ever stopped running. We never saw her again. But none of those pets were like Rosie Lee, right? Rosie Lee was my sister's pet. And believe it or not, Rosie Lee was a sheep, like an actual sheep. We had a sheep as a pet, right? True story. And uh, we raised her from a lamb. We got her, uh, like, as a, as a tiny lamb. We raised her right up until she was, like, a foot. I know you can't picture it, right? Skinny jeans and all the rest. You're just like, you didn't own a sheep. We did own a sheep, honestly, right? And uh, she loved my big sister, Esther. Like, she loved her. She, I think she actually thought she was some form of, like, human being. She wasn't. She was a sheep. But I think she thought she was a human being. She was, like, allowed in the house. She kind of had the run of the place. All that stuff, right? And then she became too big for us. And we were getting ready to move to Belfast, and we knew we couldn't bring a sheep to Belfast. It's not Babe, right? It doesn't work. It's not the pig in the city, right? It doesn't work. So we were kind of like, right, we've got to do the right thing. So Rosie Lee gets sent to a farm where there's, like, hundreds of other sheep and gets sent to the field, right? And we come to Belfast. And then one day, like a year or two later, we go back to Killalay, and we go to the farm that we'd given Rosie Lee to, and we go to the field that the farmer told us she was in. And Esther kind of walks to the side of the field, and there's like hundreds of sheep in there. I mean, I don't know about you, but I just look at sheep, and I'm like, they're all sheep. I don't know. I can't tell anything different about any of them, right? And Esther shouts across the field, Rosie Lee! And there's just like hundreds of sheep, and one of them stops. And one of them turns around, and one of them trots the whole way back across the field from one side to the other because she still knew Esther's voice. And I wonder if sometimes, right, I wonder if um, my experience of me and our family and our pets is just like our own experience when it comes to living our lives under the influence of fear. I wonder if my experience of pets is just like our experience of this life under the influence of fear. What do I mean? You know, maybe some of us are a little bit like Susie, right? Maybe everything was fine at some point in your faith, in a certain context, in a certain environment, maybe in a certain church setting or around groups of friends or at a time in your life, and then something changed. You go to uni, you go through a period of time when you can't get a job, you go through relationship woes, you know, whatever it is, and all of a sudden you become kind of jittery, right? You used to be all right, but 
then all of a sudden fear starts to take a big hold in your life. Fear starts to dictate more of your decisions than other things. You're not really yourself anymore. You do things out of character. You let fear take the lead in making decisions in your life. Or maybe today you're here and you're like Holly and life was sweet and then bang, something happened one day and you took off running and you're still running now. Because the reality is the call in our lives is to be like Rosie Lee, our sheep. The call in our lives is to be like her because she was the one who still, when she heard the voice of the one who owned her, still came running. And that's the call on our lives as people. That when you hear the voice of the shepherd, that you still come running right towards, right towards, right towards, no matter how far away you are. You see, it's so easy in this life to let fear be the thing that motivates us in so many of our decisions, right? Fear punches way, way above its weight. And the thing about fear is that once it sets in, it's like it just corrodes everything, right? It just, it's like once it gets in there, one way or another, it just corrodes the lot, all the joy, all the polish of your life. Even past experiences can be tarnished by fear whenever it sets in. Things that were good, and you know they were good, once fear starts to speak to you, all of a sudden, well, maybe they weren't so good. And you know what? Maybe they didn't actually like me. And you know what? And then all of a sudden, it's like this deconstructive thing that happens. And all of a sudden, things are corroded even in your past. I was talking to Joy the other day, and um, uh, she was talking a little bit about her journey with anxiety when she was studying her PGCE. And she said that there was this point when it was at its worst, right in the middle of that time, that she realized one day how bad it was. And she said to herself, I need to conquer this. I need to push through because I could see just how much my anxiety was even corroding you. Because that's what it does, right? And David, the writer of this psalm, is no stranger to fear, okay? He was, he was king, right? He was Israel's greatest king. He was in the line from which Jesus eventually comes, right? And I mean, think about it for a second. He used to be a shepherd. How many shepherds actually end up in the palace, right? Not many, I'm guessing. There's probably not that many that make that journey from the field to the palace. And yet the psalmist in Psalm 78 says this of David, right? He says, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, his inheritance. He went from shepherding sheep to the shepherd of a nation, right? That is a big journey to make. I don't know about you, but that's like steep learning curve, right? And the reality of his life as king was that every king has lots of people in those days that liked them and thousands who wanted to kill them. And that's true, right? Whenever you read David's life story, I mean, his own son was trying to kill him at some point. There's literally thousands of people that want him dead. And one of the things about the Psalms, particularly the ones that David wrote, is that he'll often use multiple terms for God in one Psalm, right? Multiple terms to denote different qualities of who God is and what he wanted kind of to say to God in those moments. Or as he progressed through some of those Psalms, particularly some of the long ones, you'll see kind of the names that he uses for God, they change. And yet in Psalm 23, he uses only one. And it's shepherd. He doesn't call him anything else. He only calls him shepherd. And that's significant, right? Because this psalm is saying, David is saying, that in this life it's possible to have lots of shepherds. It's possible in this life that you will have lots of shepherds. Lots of people who speak into your life with authority. Lots of voices that stake a claim on your time, on your influence, on where you're going. They may be just social media. They may be blogs. They may be actual people. They may be family members. They may be your boss, whatever. 
And some of them will speak even authoritatively into your life. You may believe that somebody has the last say in where you're going with whatever it is, right? Shepherds. But none of them are like this one. That's the whole thing about what David's trying to say in this psalm. And if we get anything from, as we journey through this, it's like nobody is like this shepherd. Nobody was like him. None of them can do what he does. And Psalm 23 unpacks why none of them are like this one. Primarily Psalm 23.3, which is our verse for today. David, David tells us that there are no other shepherds like this one because he is good and he is faithful. And throughout this passage, right, as we'll see today and in the weeks ahead, David is saying that this shepherd, our shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, as he's called later, can deal with our fear because he's present in our present, faithful in our past, our present, and our future. Our shepherd won't leave. He's with us. And here's the challenge today, right? You want to deal with the fear in your life, then you need to choose to be a sheep. You want to deal with the fear in your life? Then you're going to have to choose to be a sheep. And that means three things, right? And conveniently, they all start with D. Imagine that. Being a sheep means living lives of dependence, direction, and discipline, right? It means living lives of dependence, direction, and discipline. The first of them is dependence, right? And dependence is difficult. I don't know about you, maybe you've had experiences in your life, but for me, dependence is difficult. Like, have you ever been forced to have to wait for someone, i.e. a plumber, an electrician, somebody like that, he's like, oh, I'm it, I'll be around at one, and like there's water pouring out from somewhere, and you're like, I'll be there, and you're like, one, one comes and goes, he's not there, you're like fuming, right? Because you're like, I need you here now, I'm a millennial, I don't know how to fix anything, please come to my house, you know, and he doesn't arrive, and then you get the it's like cocking, oh, I'm sorry, I got held up at Miller job, like Subway sauce on his face. And you're like, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right, right. I mean, it's true, right? It's devastating, right? When you're dependent on someone and they're not there. It's infuriating. And part of this isn't just because of like circumstances like that. Part of that is because of the way that we are now wired to be ferociously individualistic, right? We're wired, we're told to be ferociously individualistic on the, in this life. So we're terrible when it comes to being dependent. When we had Elle and um, Joy had kind of gone through the time of her like maternity leave, stuff being on full pen, eventually it goes down and it's just stat pay. Stat pay is hard when you've been on like normal pay. Stat is devastating, right? So you're skint, okay? And my mom and dad were, were like, they were amazing. They were so generous. They were like, look, we will give you some money each month just to help you get by in these months while you're on stat pay. And it was incredible. It helped us do all sorts of things and be way more kind of stable financially than we would have been. And you know what, guys? I I hated it. I hated that like every month dad would kind of like, there you go, son. And he, he was really like good about it, right? It wasn't this like, there you go. You know, there wasn't some elaborate thing. He was really like, you know, he was cool about it. But yet some part of me, however thankful I might have been, some part of me hated it because I was dependent on it. We needed it. We came to budget around it and it was hard, right? And our world says that it's all about me, doesn't it? Everything in your world says it's all about you. You should just do your thing. And in that culture, being dependent on anything or anyone is bad because now they've got chips at the party of your life. They have a say in where you're going, right? And you don't want that, do you? And the problem with this whole posture when it comes to this stuff is that we never know who or what to trust. We become trust-resistant, right? 
We don't know how to do it. So we don't. So what do we do instead, right? Well, we make ourselves wired to avoid trust. We avoid making ourselves vulnerable. And instead, we choose control, don't we? As best we can, we choose to control all the bits of our lives. We try to control everything. The thing about control, however, is that in a world where we want to control everything, our decisions, our destination, our social media feeds, our future, our influences, our work, our relationships, our whole lives, right? In that world, everything makes us anxious. Why? Because we find out pretty quickly that there's not very much that we can control. And so everything makes us anxious. Everything makes us fearful. Because we're like trying to control everything. And nothing will kind of work out the way we hope it will. And so we're just afraid, and yet still we try. And you know what, guys? Trust and control are very, very far apart. They're not even nearly the same thing. In week one of this series, we were unpacking that the shepherd wants to deal with our fear primarily by, in verse 3, restoring my soul. That's what it says. Quick recap, restoring your soul means restoring and putting all the broken pieces of your life back to the way it all was before it got broken. It means like return to the start. It means restoring to your original condition, your original purpose. And the starting point for a life that overcomes fear is a restored soul. But in order to get a restored soul, we need to be dependent. We have got to be dependent. Look at these verses, right? Who does everything, right? When you look at the verses, whose action is it? All the way through, right? Who does it all? He does The good shepherd, he does. He makes me lie down. He leads. He guides. He restores my soul. It's all him. It's all Jesus. And he's the only one who can do it. I mean, think about it for a second, right? Here's the deal. He wants to deal with your fear by restoring your soul. Can you do that? Like, can you restore your own soul? Honestly, can you? No one can, right? If you could, you'd have thought about it by now. You'd have marketed it. You'd be on Facebook with one of those like YouTube vlogs. Hey, guys, Gary dropping in. Here's how to restore your soul. Pay me $29.99 a month. And I'll, you know, it doesn't work like that because nobody knows how to do it. Nobody but him. And we need to let him. We need to let him shepherd us. So what does that look like? Becoming dependent looks like four words, right? Really simply, I can't, he can. Becoming dependent on the shepherd means four words, I can't, he can. It means orientating your life around those four words. It means leaning with all your weight, trusting everything you have in the belief that if he is who he says he is and who we believe he is, then he'll do what he says he can. I'll say that again. It means if he is who he says he is and who we believe he is, then he'll do what he says he can. I can't. He can. That's what dependence looks like, right? And for so many of us, we start out great, right? We come to faith. God's changing your life. And you're like, he can do anything. Look at what he's doing in my life. It's incredible. Somebody says, will you pray for this? Yeah, yeah, I'll pray for it. And you're like straight in. Amazing, right? You believe he can do anything because you've seen him do some stuff in your life or whatever, right? So you're in. 
Or even as Rick was talking about last week, mountaintop experiences, okay? So you go away on like a summer team, God does all this amazing stuff, and you come back and you're like, yeah, I pray for this. And you're like, you know, contending for the city. Or you, you lead somebody to faith in Jesus. Your faith is like up here somewhere. You, you know, you do whatever, right? You go to Africa. I just think when you go to Africa, the kingdom comes. I don't know what it is about Africa, right? But like you go to Africa, your faith is like up here somewhere. And then you come back to life. And life's hard. And all of a sudden, with all of the living that you're doing, faith starts to come back down a little bit, week on week on week. And life's happening to all of us all the while, and it's not teaching us to trust. It's coaxing us to fear. And our posture flips, right? And it flips to this posture. Knowing me, I forget him. It's no longer I can't, he can. All of a sudden, it becomes knowing me, I forget him. We stop short of letting the shepherd shepherd us and we just settle for the presence of a map or a plan in our lives. Or maybe it's a little better than that. Rick used the word guide last week. Actually, I think it's even further than a guide. Why? Because whenever you think about your experience of a guide, it's a wholly contractual thing, right? You pay the price to go on the Belfast City bus tour. They do the tour. But like, imagine if something goes wrong. Like they're, not, they're like tours over guys, every man for themselves, like people scattering everywhere, right? They're not, they're not contracted to do any more than the guide says. And that's not what a shepherd does. A shepherd is more than that. A shepherd lives with the sheep, would do anything for them, was always there. And that's exactly what this shepherd, Jesus, does. He's lived with you every moment of your life. He'll be there in every day that your future holds and he's already defended you with his life. And knowing all of this, knowing that he is who he says he is and he'll do what he says he can, we flip. And that's when we begin to believe that I can't and he can. That means knowing him, I forget myself. Knowing him, I forget me. I have to depend on Jesus. And depending on him means forgetting myself. For David, this meant in the words of Alec Mottier, who's a Bible commentator, right? A life of choosing to say, I shall not be in want. I will fear no evil. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We need to be dependent. You know, I was thinking a little bit about my relationship with Joy the other day. L turned two, right? So you're doing all your like reminiscing tear emojis and all that stuff right because she's too where did the time go and all that stuff right and you're like thinking back through your relationship at various stages and you know so much of the narrative in our world is that you should not make yourself vulnerable you should not make yourself look weak don't let other people in just don't go there you'll get hurt don't let them and you know what guys it's got it so wrong and so backwards right because I've come to realize that the more open and the more vulnerable that I am with joy, the more laid bare, the more flawed and failed I let joy into knowing I truly am. All of my worst and fearful and self-centered and prideful moments, the more I let her into those, the more safe I feel. The more secure I am, the less fearful I am. And it doesn't make any sense, right? It's completely counterintuitive. How crazy is that? I've, that you may, it's possible to never have been so vulnerable in your life and never have been less afraid. And it's completely irrational, but it's true. And your life has never been safer than the most vulnerable you're prepared to be with Jesus. You want to deal with your fear, 
you're going to have to live dependent. And that means you're going to have to make yourself vulnerable. It means you're going to have to stand on, I can't, and he can. But second, it means direction, right? These are the words of Psalm 23, 3. He guides me along right paths for his name's sake, right? And that sounds straightforward, okay? Sounds like a relatively straightforward verse, except it's not, right? Because the truth of our lives is we don't take directions particularly well either, do we? I mean, we all know best. I know people who have literally had an argument with a sat-nav. You're like, it's a machine, mate. You're not going to win that one, right? Or Google Maps, right? Like, like guldering at an iPhone. You're going the wrong way. Like going mad at an iPhone, right? And honestly, in my marriage, I don't know. Uh, if I don't know how to get somewhere and Joy is in control of the iPhone, like telling me where we should be going, it is the death zone for our relationship, right? That's the truth. Because I'm like, you missed the turn. And she's like, oh, I had the phone upside down. Like, what? I mean, like, it's the death zone, right? It just doesn't work for us. And if you're here today and you're male, right, that means that most of you are going to live life in the posture, which means you open the box of whatever it is you've just bought. You look, see that the instructions are there and you never, ever look at them, right? Instructions are treated with the attitude of challenge accepted, Right? That's the way you live your life, okay? And, I mean, that's fine, okay, until it comes to Ikea, right? Why Ikea? That's fine because even, you know, sometimes you buy these things and you buy, like, loads of them. So, like, you know, a belly bookcase, right? So you build one, and then you get quite confident, right? And by the time you're building your third one, you're like, instructions, I don't need those. And so you build it yourself, and then it happens, right? You finish with that stupid little Allen key. Your finger's like aching, right? You think you've finally finished. And as you're tightening up, there's like three little screws left. And the fear starts. The fear which is like, you know, you're sitting under a bookcase one day and you're looking at the weight of the books and you're thinking, those three screws. Like someday they're going to fall and they're going to kill someone and it's going to be my fault, right? Because you didn't read the instructions, right? That's real fear. Fearing when the belly bookcase is going to fall on your own head, right? We don't take direction well in our lives. And the problem is that if we're going to let Jesus shepherd you, you're going to have to take direction. David carries on in the same vein of these words in Psalm 23, later in Psalm 32, when he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. He guides us. We have to learn to let him. He guides us. We have to learn to let him. And you know what? The reality for a shepherd was that being a good guide was important, right? Because the road was dangerous. I mean, sheep in those days were kind of like cannon fodder. Like everybody wanted to kill, steal, destroy sheep. That's just the truth, right? So the roads that they walked them on in like rural areas, they could like fall off into thorn bushes or gullies or rivers or off a cliff, you know? Or else there was all sorts of wild animals that wanted to eat them. There was all sorts of people that wanted to steal them, right? So it was pretty dangerous. The road was dangerous. How do I know, right? Well, in verse 4, the shepherd's carrying only two things, a staff and a rod. The the shepherd needed a staff, right, which is more like a crook, right? Think about, you know, nativity scenes, right? The crook with, like, the hooked head, right? That's what a staff was, and that was used to kind of pull sheep out if they got stuck in thorns or rivers or mud or whatever it was. The other thing he's carrying is a rod, and a rod doesn't really, that kind of in my mind makes me think of something that looks like a pull cue. It's not. It's like, it's like a baton, right? It's like a cudgel. It's the sort of thing that you use to protect the sheep when you had to. The shepherd's only carrying two things, the sort of thing that rescues sheep and the sort of thing that protects them. The road was hard, and direction is important. And if we don't take the direction of the shepherd, pretty soon we're going to wind up lost. 
or in danger. And you know what, guys? Some of you have known the direction of Jesus in your life that's looked like a crook pulling you out of whatever you're stuck in. Some of you have known that direction in your life. And others have known the direction of Jesus that's protected you from things in your life that would do you harm. And for others, it's been simpler still. It's just been the voice of the shepherd, like the one Isaiah describes in Isaiah 30, speaking, whispering, encouraging you. Whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. Taking direction is about so much more, however, than just the right path, right? Don't narrow it to just walk in the right path. When we read this verse, 23.3, our eyes so easily fall on the start of the sentence. He guides me along right paths, and we just kind of finish there, right? It's really easy to just go, oh, yeah, yeah, he's going to guide you on the right path in your life. Go for it, right? But actually, there's way more in the verse. He's saying that direction is much more than just the road. It's about where the road leads to. It actually says, he guides me along the right path, okay, for his name's sake. And you know, the direction of your life is about so much more than just you and where you're going. It's about so much more than that. It's about the name of the one who is leading you. It's not just about you and where you're going. It's about the name of the one who's leading you. You see, for a shepherd in those days, in completely agricultural subsistence farming, by and large, their name, they were a hired hand, their title and their reputation was entirely wrapped up in their ability to look after the flock, right? I mean, if you're a hired hand, your responsibility is the flock, and you, like, come back, and some of them are dead, some of them are lost. You're not, you know, you're not going to be in employment for very long, are you? It's not going to happen, or else if, in some of these cases, you were a slave of some description, you're probably going to wind up dead, right? Your name is mock if you can't look after the sheep. And the reality of our lives is that our direction will either bring honor or bring shame to the one who's leading us. And which one is it to be? It's not just about the road that he's leading you on, it's about the one that's leading you. You want to deal with the fear in your life? then you need to be dependent and you need to let him set the direction. What do I mean? I think it's kind of hard to describe those words, right? Whenever I say you'll bring honor, you'll bring shame, you're like, whoa, that's heavy, right? But, but God talks about this a number of times, okay? And in Ezekiel 36, God is speaking to the people of God, telling them that he's going to restore them, even though right in that moment they don't look much like God's people. In fact, they're doing a pretty crummy job, right, of representing him on the earth. And this is what it says. Therefore say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I am going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, right? There's that bit from the end of Psalm 23. Which you have profaned among the nations where you have gone. I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you've profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord, when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. For I will take you out of the nations, I'll gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I'll cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I'll give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Then 
you will live in the land I gave your ancestors. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and make it plentiful and not bring famine upon you. I will increase the fruit of the trees and the crops of the field so that you will no longer suffer disgrace among the nations because of famine. If you let him, if you depend on him, he can make you new. He can make it all new. And he can lead your life in the direction that not only straightens your path, but calls you to live in such a way that others will sit up and take notice and the world will be changed. Living fearless means learning to be a sheep under the shepherd. And that looks like dependence and it looks like direction. The message translates Isaiah 2 8 like this He'll show us the way he works so that we can live the way we're made. And that's what he wants to do. He wants to show you the way that he works so that you can live the way that you're made. And that's it. There's really not much else to say about this than that simple and incredible truth. But you know something? Those two things are going to need the third D, and that's discipline. It's going to need discipline. It's going to need discipline to speak to the fear when it speaks to your life. And lots of us know what that feels like. Some of us, it feels like a whisper. Some of us, it feels like a very loud, loud voice. Sometimes it's physical. It manifests in you know, your heart rate rising. It manifests in physical restlessness. You know, whatever it is, some of us know the voice when it speaks. And usually they speak the second we've just had a mountaintop experience because they want to wreck and ruin it the second you've just had it. It's the voice of the one who comes to steal and kill and destroy. And we're going to need discipline to speak against that voice over our own hearts and over our own lives as soon as we hear it. We're going to need discipline to keep choosing to live out of a place of I can't, he will. In those moments when you feel disappointed or you feel distant from God, you're going to need to push into the fact that that still doesn't change the fact that I know I can't, I know he can. Even when it might not look like it, even when we're at our wit's end. We're going to need discipline to not just fall back into an attitude of I'll do it myself. We're going to need discipline to keep opening up God's word, seeking him and knocking and asking in prayer. We're going to need discipline to choose to live in community in every way we can because living on your own is way easier than living in community, right? We're going to need discipline to take direction as and when it comes and discipline to be a sheep underneath a shepherd. You know, I think so often... And maybe this is for someone today, right? That we don't allow ourselves to be dependent or to take direction. And we live afraid because the lies that the enemy tells you, the father of lies as we called him in the first week, the lies that he tells you are actually full of facts. You find it hard to be dependent. You find it hard to take this direction. You find it hard to live fearless because the lies that he tells you are actually full of facts. And that's why they stick. They're not so elaborate and so mad and so like out there that you know you, you, the second you hear them, you're not just like, Pfft. they're actually fact. We are broken. We are that flawed. We are as much of a failure as he tells us. That is true, right? We've probably done everything that the voice that speaks to you that wants to kill everything and destroy it and erode it and corrode it in your life, you've probably done all the things that he says you've done, right? But 
the reason that it's a lie is because it's only half of the truth. Eugene Peterson said it way better than I ever could in his book, A Long Obedience, right? And this is what he says. The lies are impeccably factual. They contain no errors. There are no distortions or falsified data, but they are lies all the same because they claim to tell us who we are and omit everything about our origin in God and our destiny in God. They talk about the world without telling us God made it. They tell us about our bodies without telling us they are temples of the Holy Spirit. They instruct us in love without telling us about the God who loves us and gave himself for us. The question is today whether you're going to put off those lies whether you're going to stand on the one who's faithful with all your weight, whether you're going to choose dependence, direction, and you're going to have the perseverance to live in discipline in this life.